I tried to leave Vietnam behind me for years as it was only a place I was and I wanted to withdraw from it. I never thought to think music as an aspect of the Vietnam era. Welcome everyone to The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall with the Veterans Breakfast Club. Before we get to season four of The Scuttlebutt, we wanted to tack on a bonus track uh, for season three. We received an overwhelming number of responses to our war music episode. We thought that we would read these responses on the podcast and talk about it. The war music episode seemed to touch everybody in a different way. They remembered different music. They they were taken back to certain times uh, when they were deployed. Um, and, and that really got us thinking. So we're getting the band back together doing the reunion tour and doing this volume two of war music. Moving forward, we would love to do a volume three and talk more about World War II era music, uh, Korean War era music, or even post Vietnam War era music. Easy for me to say, uh, but all of it is fair game. Super excited to, to read these responses. This is the first response video that we have done and we wanna thank everybody who sent us emails and comments uh, and, and liked and shared and subscribed uh, due to the war music episode. So uh, joining me again will be Don Nemchek, Navy, Vietnam era veteran, Ryan All, post 9-11 Army veteran, current reservist, and finally, Kevin Cook, I call him a music historian because boy, does he know a lot about it. Um, Super excited to bring you this response video. If you have any questions, thoughts, comments, uh, please email me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org. Also like, share, subscribe, ring the bell, and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And if we get more responses, we'll certainly love to bring them up here on the podcast. So thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, without further ado, bonus track, War Music Volume 2 coming at you. We were so overwhelmed with the uh, exciting and interesting responses that we got to our war music episode that we decided we need to do this response episode. We need to read through some of these responses, continue the conversation. Uh, thank you so much for reaching out to us, for reaching out to Don and for giving us your thoughts on, on the war music episode. Uh, we really enjoyed it. Um, you'll notice that uh, our, our music historian, Kevin Cook is MIA right now. He is with his baby son. So uh, hopefully we'll see him soon. Otherwise, we're going to dive into some of these responses uh, and have some fun with this and, and talk through sort of what we've heard from you. Uh, we always encourage our audience to not only like, share, subscribe, comment, and ring the bell on YouTube, uh, but to reach out to us. Uh, mine is Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org. Thank you so much, everyone, for, for responding to, to our War Music episode. Uh, we are going to be heavy into season four of The Scuttlebutt. We are in preparation uh, for all new episodes. Uh, all the great content you've come to enjoy, maybe some new segments that you haven't heard yet. Um, those will be upcoming. And also, we're going to be getting back to Ryan Rants, which is something that has been in the works for a while. And we got a really great one coming up this season as well. Without further ado, we're going to go ahead and jump into our responses. And the first one that I would like to read is from Brian Schnick. Nice and short and sweet email. Uh, he said, you guys, put together a channel of music on YouTube, super ultra way cool. That's just, a, one, it's a great email. Um, two, that's just a good reminder for our audience that all the music that we talked about in the War Music Volume 1, we created a channel of that music on YouTube. You can go to that channel. Uh, we will list the link here in the chat. And you can go to that, listen to the music that we've been talking about. So uh, I'm going to dive over to Don here to read the next one. Uh, this is from, what'd you say, Lieutenant Commander Doug Thorndike? 
Yeah, thanks, uh, Sean, for giving me the opportunity today to read some of these comments. Most of them are heartfelt and, and very sincere, and they're written to me from veterans who I served with or uh, know personally. And the one that stood out uh, very early on was from uh, Lieutenant Commander, United States Navy, now retired, Doug Thorndike. Uh, he's out in the uh, Seattle, Washington area. We served together back in the day. Uh, very, very uh, intelligent man and uh, a well-read man. So mm -hmm. what uh, Lieutenant Commander Thorndike wrote to me was, the whole scuttlebutt program was thoughtful and balanced. I found it particularly interesting since while I recognized most of the tunes discussed, I never identified with the lyrics and that part of the political and social movement. The songs and conversation elicited memories of my service time away from home and the background music of my era. Having never been in a combat zone, my personal perspective is limited to my patriotic duty to the military and being away from home and following the lead of my three older brothers. And I just might add to this, uh, when Doug served, he was just recently married and then uh, had, was deployed and it, it really got to him. Uh, we were pretty close friends and uh, I remember how much he missed his wife. And uh, uh, I, when they visited me oh, 45 years later, I made a personal comment to her about that. Of course, she laughed it off, but I know she knew what I was saying. But Doug further wrote, having uh, never been in near combat, my personal perspective is limited to my patriotic duty. The show was both insightful and informative. Comments and observations were uh, cogent, and I feel better informed about that chapter in our history. Thanks to all involved. And he's very sincere about that. And I certainly appreciate it and wanted to share that comment with everybody in the audience today. I can tell just by his vocabulary choices that he must be a well-read man. Oh, he's <laughs> I would probably have to look up cogent just to be like, is this the right use of the word? In this <laughs> Not only is he but, intelligent, he, uh, their two daughters are both medical doctors. And uh, wow. they, they, uh, they, they certainly were uh, well-read and, and a pleasure to be with during my time in the service. That's so nice of him to send that response. Thank you, Doug. Yeah, Doug, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, I, I think that everybody sort of reacted to this War Music episode uh, because I think music is so visceral. I think we've mentioned that maybe in volume one. Um, and it, it brings back all those memories and brings back all of those feelings. And, you know, like you said in, in volume one, Ryan, whenever you said we were all just hanging out and we heard this Green Day song and it was just like, and then every time you hear it now, it sort of takes you back a bit. Um, yeah. You know, and, and I, I think that that maybe force people in a way to, to get to their computer and be like, I want to chat with them about this. I want to, I want to have conversation. I think music is such a great conversation starter um, that, it, you know, I, I was just so happy to see the number of responses that we were receiving from this and definitely our most responded to episode that we've done of the Scuttlebutt thus far. We are welcoming our historian, Kevin Cook. How, how's the baby, Kev? Oh, he's good, man. He's uh, he's actually, I'm at, I'm at home alone. He's at daycare. I was doing some yard work and doing other things around the house. And I'm a little late to the conversation, but I'm glad to be back and hello to Ryan and Don again. So. Where's my wet noodle? Where's your wet noodle? That's uh, that's for another podcast, my friend. That's <laughs> not for this podcast. <laughs> so we were uh, diving into some great responses here. Uh, next up was Rich Doer. Uh, uh, I'm going to go ahead and jump right into this. On May 17th, 2015, I was watching the final episode of Mad Men. The TV screen was filled with people on a mountainside singing, I'd like to buy the world a Coke. 
In that moment, I was taken back to the Fubai dial telephone exchange. I was the OIC officer in charge of the Fubai SSD, Signal Support Detachment, a supporting unit for the 101st Airborne Division. By March of 1971, I was a two-digit midget. Now, I'm going to pause right there real quick. Don, what's a two-digit midget? Two-digit midget means you have, let's say, 10 days to go in country, okay? And then if once you go down to nine, uh, the number, the single digit, you'll be a single digit midget. So whenever, well, you, you know, whenever you have the, the two digits in the number, you will be a two digit midget, single digit, you're counting it down nine, eight, seven, six. And then so the, the comments of how short you are are often funny. Uh, there's often a line to it, you know, I'm so short I could jump off a dime and raise dust. And there's some more uh, ribald uh, comments to that as well, but I'll leave it a go at that. But uh, being a four timer is very important when uh, you're looking forward to uh, leaving the area that you're in. Uh, many guys recognize that in several ways. And I remember one of ours was uh, the bottles of VO, Sigram's VO whiskey had a nice black and gold ribbon on it. Once you consumed that bottle as a short timer, you took that ribbon off and put it on your collar or on your cuff or something. And everybody recognized that coveted uh, position of being a short timer. Ryan, did they have that in the post 9-11 world as well? Not in the same way. No, there was no uh, no real excitement about it or any or any traditions it was more like you know please just stop sending me on patrol for like the last two weeks please like just yeah. let me hang out put me on gate guard i don't know just, just try not to get blown up before we leave you know that kind of stuff right anyway back to back to rich uh so less than 100 days to deros d-e-r-o-s not sure this acronym but date estimated return from overseas less than one okay if i would have kept reading i probably would have figured out what two digit mid, two digit midget was from 1100 to 1300 the crew split time between the mess hall and duty at noon the armed forces radio network started to a show with the new seekers an australian group yeah. singing i'd like to teach the world to sing we had a radio tape player that I can only remember listening to at that hour. The song was very upbeat and positive. Since we did not have television, I didn't realize at the time that there was a commercial in the States for Coke that came before the lyrics were changed for the new seekers. Near the end of the hour, mail was delivered. I received a cassette tape. My wife and I had exchanged tapes since the previous June. Uh, MARS, military auxiliary radio system connections were not that frequent and we wanted more than just written communication. This envelope would be unique. The tape contained a snippet of my one-month-old son crying. Oh, God. When I returned to Vietnam after coming home from a stateside r, &R to see him born, I got word of a 21-day drop in my DEROS date and would now be home in two months. Whenever I hear the ending of I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing and hear them echo through the hills for peace throughout the land, I'm back in Nam, remembering the sounds that were music to my ears. Wow, wow, that gave me chills. And it's just like we were just talking about. I mean, like music connects you to a time and space in your life that is, you know, significant. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. But I think that's why, you know, music is so great. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that song, Don? Uh, vaguely, I do. Uh, I believe the commercial came out. I was probably deployed at that time, but... Uh, I do vaguely remember that song, not identifying it with it that well. I think the commercial had a lot of uh, children holding hands and uh, global type of uh, setting, but uh, it wasn't something that uh, I remembered that well. Mm -hmm. I think it was like different nationalities, it was yeah. men and women, black and white. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, because I only have a memory. I don't obviously. I wasn't alive when the commercial came out, but I remember the end of Mad Men, and that last shot when Don Draper has that one golden idea for that one brilliant ad, and he in the in the show they they kind of make it seem like he's the one who thought of that commercial. Spoiler alert. So yeah. <laughs> No, I don't want to watch Mad Men. That is. Did you say spoiler <laughs> alert? Oh, yeah. Yeah, by the way, Mad Men's been off the air for a while, guys. So, you know. Yeah, you had your chance. I, I, I had your chance. Off, after someone's been around for like at least, you know, two years, you don't have to worry about spoiling it. They should have seen <laughs> yeah. it. By yeah. Um, next, Ryan, uh, do you want to read uh, George Dvorsnak? Yes. So George sent us a response uh, entitled that you touched a nerve. So... Uh, George had to say, you really touched a nerve with this one. I'm one of those old Vietnam guys, May 1967 to May 1968. Yeah, the Tet time, the real one. Ouch. We flew to Arvin, Republic of Vietnam, out of Oakland Army Base, which was right across the bay from San Francisco. So that Scott McKenzie hippie anthem, if you're going to San Francisco, be sure to wear flowers in your hair, had special meaning for us. And the animals, we got to get out of this place is special too. It never mentions Vietnam, but we knew what they meant. You had to be in a club in Arvin when they played this song to appreciate it. The flower child generation was significant to us because we weren't part of it. In the clubs of VN, the VN teenager had bands. They'd sing American songs. I went up to one of the band members and tried to talk to him. We couldn't speak a word of English. The band had memorized the lyrics to the songs they performed. You could literally not tell that the band didn't know what they were singing. Don't forget the 1966 Royal Guardsman song about Snoopy and the Red Baron. A really big deal at White Sands Missile Range where I was stationed just before going to Vietnam. You had to be in the officer's club with seven or eight beers in you to appreciate the song. All you need to see is the Bob Hope Christmas show at Long Bend in 1967 and the same show in later years. The 1967 show was my army. Short haircuts and guys looking sharp. The later years show had a different army. The guys had peace signs on their helmets, long hair, including sideburns, and FTA, F the army, on their helmets. And that was, and that was the officers. Things had changed along with the country. Oh yeah, our country. Memories, memories. Boy, there's a lot to dissect out of that out of that yeah. response um, yeah the, i think the chris the charlie brown christmas special came out in 64 or 65 so yeah and so yeah i mean snoopy the whole cartoon that that red baron i remember watching that as a kid on reruns and my uncle telling me he watched it when he was like a teenager you know it, it especially mentioning the bob hope uso shows uh, bob hope is you know remembered by many it started in world war ii during these world war uh, USO shows, giving up his Christmas um, uh, to entertain the troops uh, throughout the throughout the world. I attended the last one in 72, I believe it was, and it was Lola Falana and Roman Gabriel and all the names from the 70s. You know, there was so, I mean, there's 300,000 guys piled in. And uh, I think, Sean, I even sent to you the uh, clip from the movie Apocalypse Now. Yeah. And they bring the uh, helicopter down with the Playboy girls and all of a sudden the guys are starting to uh, react unruly and they left. Uh, it's quite a telling uh, scene from that movie, but it was not quite that, uh, that rambunctious, but it was still uh, very, very, number one, it was well-received. Everybody wanted to have some of that uh, entertainment from, from back in the country. And you felt uh, uh, 
appreciated somewhat by Bob Hope and the entertainers. They, they really gave their all in, in sometimes very difficult situations. They were under some rocket attacks back in 67, I believe it was. And uh, Bob Hope was Bob Hope. And what always struck me whenever he brought all the pretty girls up, Miss USA, Miss World, somebody like that, he would always say, stand by men. He goes, this is what you're really fighting for. And then the girls would come out and the guys would all uh, go ballistic, which was understandable at that time. A lot different nowadays. Very much. <laughs> um, yeah, the uh, that scene in Apocalypse Now, little dorky footnote, that's Bill Graham, the guy that plays the kind of the, the manager of that scene. That's Bill Graham, the promoter, who uh, tosses the uh, smoke marker at the end and does the peace sign and hops in. And he ran uh, the Fillmore Winterland. Yeah, Fillmore. He yeah. was there for, uh, I think he was even, I think he, he was there even for Live Aid and stuff. He was a, a, a world-renowned concert promoter. For those who don't know, Don, he says George mentions in here the clubs in Vietnam. Did you ever visit any of those? Oh yes, all through Southeast Asia, and particularly the when he mentioned the bands, uh, I will certainly back that up. Uh, I was stationed in the Philippines after my tour of duty uh, in Vietnam, and uh, the Philippines was renowned for having their bands covering every type of music possible, from country western to soul. And what really, the one that stands out in my mind is when they did uh, Santana, you got to change your evil ways. And the, again, they spoke, Philippines is an English speaking country as well, but they really covered that well to the point where in good humor, instead of saying, you got to change your evil ways, baby, they would spin that and say, you got to change your underwear, baby. <laughs> Everybody would crack up and uh, it was just a, a fun time was had by all, but the clubs, be it the enlisted man club, uh, which always did a good job of uh, providing some entertainment. Most of it was from the Philippines or the Vietnamese uh, bands, mostly the Philippines. They really did a good job covering. They're, they're talented musicians. They work hard. And it was something that they, uh, they took with pride. So uh, I certainly do remember the bands and the cover songs that they did. Uh, everyone had one. Uh, when I was in the Philippines, every ship had their own bar. Okay, they would, uh, the, let's just say the Jolo Club would be dedicated to the USS Constellation. They would have a big sign, welcome sailors on the USS Constellation. That was like our home bar. Guys would just gravitate there and you know that's where you were most welcome, although you were welcomed everywhere uh, back in the day. Of course, you had money to spend and uh, uh, time to uh, enjoy yourself. So uh, mm -hmm. certainly those times were very well remembered by most sailors that uh, were in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam era because uh, that, that entertainment became very profitable as well. Those bars and uh, clubs throughout the uh, country. Even the enlisted man club uh, really did well. And it was certainly a welcome uh, uh, welcome time for us uh, to get some uh, American food and some cold beers. And you kind of felt safe there as well. But some of those places you had to watch, uh, watch your back, especially in country, because you never knew the, uh, the people that were uh, serving you. What were they really asking you? What type of questions were they asking? And that goes back to that saying, loose lips sink ships. Uh, we had what was called the bamboo hotline. And if you wanted to know when the uh, USS Ranger was coming in port, oftentimes uh, you, you, know, you would go out in town and just ask some of the girls, what times, what days are USS Ranger coming? She'd go, oh, it's coming next week. Uh, you'll see them then. So uh, it was certainly a, a welcome time for us and uh, a little bit way to blow off some steam. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kevin, musically, you know, I hadn't really even occurred to me that bands in Vietnam would be covering American songs. Uh, 
how how far back does covering music go? This sounds like something that, for whatever reason, I thought was more you know modern than than even in the '60s. And how difficult do you think it was for them to cover American music? It's probably very different musically than what they were used to. Um, lyrically, it might have been difficult. I can't imagine musically it was very difficult. I, mm -hmm. You can pretty much drop a four four beat behind a drum kit in any country, and people are going to move. Mm -hmm. um, but pop covering popular, especially British and American top 40, be it British Invasion, uh, be it Soul and Motown, that was very, very popular uh, in the mid 60s. I only know this because the band that I'm in is called uh, Los Vampiros Amarillos. It means the Yellow Vampires. That band name came from a band that my father-in-law was in in the mid 60s in Mexico City. He was a teenager growing up and playing the bands that were popular in Mexico and Central and South America at the time. They also covered American Top 40. They covered, uh, you know, they covered the uh, charts that were coming out of England and, and uh, America. So they would play uh, the bands that were local to the area and then they would cover the animals. They'd cover the Beatles. They'd cover the Rolling Stones because those bands didn't tour Central and South America at the mm -hmm. time. So the only way people local could hear those was if a local band learned all those songs and played them at the parties and at the dances. Same thing probably, uh, the same thing probably uh, goes for Southeast Asia. These bands in the Philippines, these teenage kids that love American music, well, those bands, you know, the Beach Boys aren't gonna play a bar in the Philippines for a bunch of uh, guys that are just got off of tour, but these local kids could learn those songs and play them. Or if a guy wanted Johnny Cash, a kid could get up with a guitar and play those songs. So covering music like that um, was very, very common back then. You have to remember rock and roll was only maybe 10 years old. So most of the stuff that was out was really good. And people would put out a record and a band that was popular would cover it like a month later. You know, one of the first hits of the birds was a cover of Mr. Tambourine Man, which Bob Dylan had put out only a year before. That's not as common as today. It's very rare for a band to cover another artist that just came out. Normally they're covering an artist from 10 or 20 years earlier, but you have to remember in the mid sixties going into Vietnam, rock and roll arguably can be traced back to like the first recording maybe was 1949. I think it was Fats Domino in New Orleans, but popular level, it really started up in 55 with Little Richard, Floyd Price, Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley. So it was still pretty young. So you had lots of, you had a lot of bands out there, but there wasn't this big backlog of like mm -hmm. decades of rock and roll history. So covering music was really, really common back then, especially if you were an American living in another country, they would learn the pop hits or the jazz hits of the day and play them for people mm -hmm. at popular resorts and stuff. It was a real big thing back then. Yeah. Don, you look like you had a thought. Yeah, I did. When Kevin was mentioning uh, the early rock and roll, you know, I Turner. Uh, was one of the first to have one of the recognized uh, rock and roll hits, uh, Buick 59, and uh, some other uh, uh, things by him. And of course, you had uh, Big Joe Turner. You had a lot of rhythm and blues guys that transformed from rhythm and blues in the 40s, okay, into rock and roll of the 50s, Little Richard and, and yeah. some of the others uh, that were really well, uh, well known back then. But so what happened, uh, and I echo what Kevin says, those uh, teenage bands would pick up on the, the British Invasion songs. The Beatles were real big back then. And they would just pick up on that. And the, the, the musical uh, end of it was just first class. You know, the lyrics, yeah. they spoke with an accent or you can tell the dialect, et cetera. 
but their musical talent with that was just excellent. They worked hard at it. They worked mm -hmm. very hard at it and they wanted to please. They really did. Yeah. The exciting thing back then about covering material too is if you were a pretty good musician with a bunch of guys behind you that could really, if, if I'm a drummer in a band with two guys who play guitar, bass and keyboards and three of us can sing, if you're a really good musician, even if you're just doing nothing but covers, you could be a really well-attended band because bands didn't tour as much back then. If they toured, they didn't tour as They don't do like these in the 70s and 80s where they started like going on tour for a year and playing, you know, 30 cities in just America. And again, the backlog of rock and roll was so small that only the really good stuff got through. So you could be a band that played nothing but covers and have a solid two hour set list that would just light the place on fire and people would come in droves to see you. So it was really exciting back then. Yeah, you know, it's much, much different now. Like there's still kids in garages and basements slamming away. But to put it politely, they have decades of garbage they have to sort through before they can find good covers and, and, and before they can write their own material. Because like if you were writing original songs back then and you had nothing but little richard and chuck berry and elvis presley and, and like a bunch of really great jazz and bebop records to listen to with all that mixed in plus your hard work chances are you were going to write a pretty good original now it's a little different so mm -hmm. ryan i think this this is like leading to a much bigger conversation than the idea of just the uso shows that that were uh, have been around for a long time and i'm, I'm interested in 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 post 9-11, you know, vets, like what were the USO shows that you guys had? What bands were coming over and performing for you guys? Yeah, the um, biggest one I, so I didn't get to attend very many uh, for various reasons, mostly because, you know, I was out busy doing a job. Uh, but the one I did get to go to, I remember actually being upset about because we had just come off of a uh, week-long patrol set that had been particularly difficult where we got very little sleep uh, and we had to wake up early to go see Toby Keith. And I was like, I could give a crap less about Toby <laughs> Keith right now. I want to sleep. But my platoon sergeant like forced me to go and I complained the whole time. Um, and, uh, but what was cool was I got to, I got to get up on stage and meet Toby Keith because my, um, battle buddy had just recently returned from the hospital, um, from being injured. And, uh, he, he got up there. So Toby brought him up on stage to recognize him in front of the crowd. Um, and I got to go up there with him, which was kind of cool. I didn't get to, uh, but I got to meet Toby Keith. Um, the, the, my lasting impression of it was how big Toby Keith is. Um, he is a large man. So um, oh, I thought you meant like fans wise, how big he is, not no, no, he, how like big. how physically large Toby Keith was because <laughs> my friend Tom um, was in full kit, had his helmet on and, and, and his boots. Uh, and he's about my size, maybe even a little taller than me. So five, nine, five, 10. And, uh, Toby Keith put his hand like on Tom's head, you know, and it was like shoulder level. Like Toby Keith was literally another head and shoulders taller than my friend was, who was a little taller than me. And his hand was like on top of his helmet. Like he was, like he was a little kid or something. I was like, wow. And then I looked Toby Keith up and realized he had played football and all this stuff. I'm like, well, I can see that. Cause he is a huge human. Yeah. He, he was, was an oil he was an oil rig guy too, or something like that for a while. Yeah. I read somewhere like he, you know, was out in the fields busting his ass for years before he even got professional into professional music. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that was my USO experience. The one other one that I was excited for was a bunch of uh, Steelers and Bill Cower were coming over, but it got canceled because of a sandstorm. So the one, but you know, other than that, no, no good USO experiences for, for me. 
Don, there were USO shows back in Vietnam. Are there any that you attended? Yes, it was the Bob Hope Show in 1972. Uh, he brought Lola Falana, Roman Gabriel, Les Brown in his band of renown, and a whole host of others that it was just entertainment. But again, he came on and uh, there's just so many people in the audience. And of course, it was being filmed for television too. So there was some staging involved, some theatrics, if you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, they often ended with uh, Bob Hope and his wife uh, leading the audience into singing uh, uh, Silent Night. And that was a very, very Christmas time. You're away from home. Some guys away from home for the first time. And uh, the whole tempo of that uh, audience from being very rambunctious and laughing and, and really having a good time with it, it became a somber time toward the end because again that song silent night hit home with a lot of guys and uh, i kind of remember that uh, a lot of the uso shows are available on youtube they're worth seeing just to go back in the day and how much bob hope and that group of entertainers had to go through to entertain the troops they didn't sit go to the main bases at denang or or a cameron bay uh, they went out in the field sometime maybe not all of them but they brought some with them and i know that we had spoken earlier on uh, about korea and how that has been somewhat ignored. And we talked about Marilyn Monroe. And there's a very uh, iconic uh, uh, picture of her coming off a plane. Korea in the middle of winter was very cold. She comes off, dumps off her fur coat, and she's got a strapless gown on, and she's Marilyn Monroe. And uh, yeah. that was just something that uh, the guys certainly appreciated. And as Bob Hope said, as he would introduce uh, these uh, very pretty women, he says, guys, this is what you're fighting for. And boom, mm-hmm. here they come out. And something to be said for it. Um, I want to get back to the to our responses here, Don. You had one from Len Conley. I do. Uh, I'll be happy to read it. It's a little bit. I know Len very well. He was in country, I believe, in '66. Came out uh, very quiet, and uh, wasn't the uh, outgoing fellow that I once knew before he left. And there was a reason for that. But Len wrote, "I actually enjoyed the podcast. Not sure what I was expecting, but it was good. I never thought." to think music as an aspect of the Vietnam era. You did a great job analyzing and giving your interpretation of this time. I tried to leave Vietnam behind me for years as it was only a place I was and I wanted to withdraw from it. I grew bitter at the treatment of the veterans and still have much of that inside me, but this podcast shed light on aspects I never permitted myself to think of. So given that podcast, you know, Len went into a shell, many guys do. And when he was hearing some of the explanations we were giving about the music and how it, it impacted us, it took him out a little bit. And like I said, I know Len very well. And uh, this was not a surprise response because uh, uh, a lot of times, uh, particularly someone who really has some bad memories and is trying to compartmentalize them and just close that door. This opened the door up for him a little bit, and I'm glad that we were able to do that for him. Seems like music is, is the thing to, that will do that. For, you know, I mean, we talk about uh, smells sometimes with with the Veterans Breakfast Club. What smell do you remember from yeah. your deployment? Um, and and they all there's always something that every veteran talks about, like that particular smell. Anytime you know, you, or you can't forget that smell of this thing. Um, but it's that and and music. Um, it's you know, very interesting. That's a really incredible response uh, from Len. Thank you for that. Yeah, it was deep. And you know, when you mentioned smells, I think the Vietnam era, as we remember this fish sauce that was permeating in the country almost as soon as you got off the plane with the heat, humidity, all of a sudden you smell this, this smell and you didn't know what it was until 
uh, it was explained to everything was made with that fish sauce, particularly in Korea. Uh, they had a they uh, fermented uh, cabbage, I believe it was called kimchi. It's a very mm -hmm. culminating uh, smell as well. And those do bring back uh, some memories for you. You know, you come back and say, man, that's, you know, that smoke smell, but that, that smell of cordite, uh, that smell of sweat, you know, just being out in the jungle for that period of time. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's, uh, it's something that the senses will bring back uh, uh, memories to the brain. Ryan, is there a scent or a sound music that, that, yeah. <laughs> Um, all bad smells is yeah, what yeah. really is what really sticks with me. Um, uh, you know what a what a portageon smells like at 130 degrees. You know when it's 130 degrees outside. Um, sand, you know that has a smell. Um, sand has and, a smell. And when it's in the air everywhere and permeating everything, yes. There's and then there's this moon dust stuff uh, where it was like the smell of hot sand mixed with like you know uh concrete that had been ground down to a dust from mm -hmm. tanks driving on it um things mm -hmm. like that also one thing that i think actually permanently ruined my my sense of smell uh because my wife always makes fun of me for not being able to smell things um there was a landfill about 15 miles north of Baghdad, right near the main highway that we would have to drive by and they were always burning garbage and it would Jesus. like waft across the highway, mm -hmm. you know? And so you'd be driving through it. And a lot of the times, um, you know, you'd be up in a gunner's hatch or whatever. So you're exposed to the smell and it doesn't matter. You know, it's, it's going through the Humvee, it's going through the armored vehicle, it doesn't matter. And we, mm -hmm. we had a name for that. It's not a, it's a gross name, but it's not, there's not a swear word, but we called it, uh, <laughs> Cheesy, beefy diarrhea <laughs> was what it smelled like. And I think it did permanently um, mess up my smell. <laughs> that and uh, lemon lime Gatorade. I, that was like the one thing we had to drink that wasn't water. So now I can't drink lemon lime Gatorade. So when I drink lemon lime Gatorade, I think of being in Iraq because it was the one thing we had to drink that wasn't water. Yeah. So taste. Taste can take you back as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So. Sorry for that visual, but that's what it smelled like. <laughs> no, I, I can't forget that now. That's <laughs> okay. Next, uh, next response was from Ross Brewer. Uh, Ryan, do you want to take this one? Yeah. Ross Brewer had to say, uh, excellent show with a cast of characters with in-depth knowledge about the music that reflects the times during the Vietnam war up to the early two thousands. As it was mentioned during the show, sometimes you remember the words of a song or just the music and it wasn't until now that I put the two together and related them to the war and not. Great song selection included in the related YouTube playlist. Well done and thanks. A good cast of characters. That's a nice compliment. <laughs> I feel like it is. I feel like we really <laughs> nailed it. I feel like we have a good dynamic going on here. We should, we should carry this on. Well, I figured this was kind of getting the band back together here. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe it was too early for the reunion tour, but... Uh, didn't want to pass these responses up. Um, thank you, Ross, for sending that in. Uh, really appreciate it. And uh, I think last, last but certainly not least, uh, Don, we have Mark Prince. Mark Prince and I served together uh, during two tours of duty. And uh, Mark is uh, uh, quite a character. He did, did a lot of photography of blues singers out on the West Coast after he got out of the Navy uh, and did some other things. He's, he's an author writing a book right now. And he's, he's a pretty deep guy. 
and he has a, a wide variety of interests and a wide variety of music. And uh, Mark wrote to me, appreciated the Scuttlebutt podcast about the music of wartime. World War II had the music of Glenn Miller and the Andrews sisters. Our Vietnam had the Doors, Jimi Hendrix, Jefferson Airplane, Country Joe and the Fish, and so much more. It brought a little bit of home into the jungles and onto the ships at sea. Good job, fellas. Thank you so much, Mark, uh, for that. And uh, he brings up a great point. You know, we, we sort of touched on it a little bit earlier, this idea of World War II into Korean War and what music was being played during that time. Things shifted so drastically for music, I think, during the Vietnam War. Um, but Kevin, maybe you could speak a little bit to that, that shift from World War II into Korean War and maybe what the, the troops were listening to at that time. I think for a while, a lot of the kind of uh, what was popular in America didn't change. Um, in World War II, you certainly had jazz and big bands, swing. That was, uh, those were the big things. And also Broadway musicals, which even into the to early 60s were still having top 10 hits. So you had like Oklahoma coming out during the time of, uh, Oklahoma was uh, in the mid 40s uh, during, the, uh, during the Second World War. Uh, for Korea, at least in America, I think the kind of the first rock and roll loosely was kind of bop and jazz. There was this Dizzy, or um, not Dizzy Gillespie, excuse me. There was a Charlie Parker. There was this sh shift in jazz music from the traditional dance band to smaller bands that was a bit more avant-garde, a bit more like what we would call coffee house nowadays. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, there was quite a bit of time between. Korea and Vietnam, between Vietnam, especially going from a police action to a, a escalation in the late 60s. And during that time, you had this massive shift in music where, you know, Elvis Presley and the Beatles were on television and literally kids were in school the next day talking about how the whole world changed because now they were introduced to this phenomenon that they had no idea about. You know, unfortunately, a lot of the black artists who were really the creators and the inventors of rock and roll didn't get the same attention. So the, you know, I mean, I still think Little Richard is the king of rock and roll. Um, but yeah, that was something that certainly changed. You know, I've been doing a lot of thinking too, since this last podcast about the music, the way it touched certain people, um, those kind of unsung heroes of uh, music that inspired a lot of the musicians who, who we love and reference to in this podcast. Remember, a lot of those musicians back in the mid to late 60s, they had friends that were going over to Vietnam and some of them weren't coming back. Um, being a big Springsteen fan and, and us talking about Born in the USA during the last show, I remembered that um, there was a drummer that Springsteen was in a band with by the name of Bart Haynes who was the drummer of Springsteen's first proper band. And he showed up one day to band practice in his, his Marine fatigues and he was going over to Vietnam. And he joked like, I don't even know where it is, but I'm going. Um, and he died in country during his tour. There's countless stories like that of people that inspired this change and this shift in music. A lot of, it, it, made, it made the experience for a lot of these musicians personal. And I think that's something that's, I think that music that they created really touches um, soldiers back then. You know, it was more, it wasn't just about singing about against the war. Like a lot of these people, emotionally speaking, had kind of skin in the game with family members and friends going over and, and not coming back. Um, I think that's like probably the biggest change that had such a, dr a drastic effect on the music, you know, 
I doubt a lot of soldiers in World War II knew Glenn Miller, <laughs> and uh, and a lot of and there wasn't a draft too, so it was it was different. And you know, I don't think the Army and the Armed Forces had any problem um, seeking out soldiers to help fight fascism. Um, but at some point, it, the Vietnam conflict went from being very popular to very unpopular in the states, and you know that was a major shift in the policies and the politics of the war of the time. And that certainly affected the music. So that's a, a really big change. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I could go on and on about that, but I, I've been mm -hmm. thinking a lot about those personal stories about these, these people who not only wrote these songs because they may not have, they may have started to take two. I started thinking about these personal stories with these songwriters, because not only did their opinion of the war shift, but they started to see friends of theirs not coming home, mm. which made it a lot more personal, which may have caused them to write the material that they wrote and mm. may have shifted their ideas about the idea of being over there fighting communism, as opposed to not getting any real answers as to why people were over there for so long. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure it's not, that's something Don could speak to more of. I mean, I just know what I've read through books and seen in documentaries and had the chance to talk to the occasional vet about that. So, mm -hmm. you know, Kevin's point is very well made. And a lot of times when it made, and that this started to happen probably in 68, 69. Okay. Whenever the tide was turning, you know, the, yeah. the 500,000 GIs in the uh, in country in 68. And then afterwards, all of a sudden people were leaving their homes or the draft was the big catalyst for that. Uh, then the protests happened in, in the college campuses and uh, the, the world was starting to change. And uh, the uh, 68 Chicago riots was a big part of that as well. It was live on TV. All of a sudden, we're seeing these uh, uh, demonstrators being beaten by police. And, and the country started to be in the turmoil. Assassinations happened. The country changed. Mm -hmm. and from a veteran standpoint, you know, the music changed as well. And as, as we had mentioned before, it wasn't so much that we rejected that or, or found any offense with it, because that was just part of our era, part of our uh, uh, our life as well. So uh, the, the music certainly had a big impact on people. And uh, it, it was somewhat interesting also because we were limited uh, in some of the information that we were getting, some of the music that we were getting until guys from uh, recent draftees or whatever were coming in. And one of the first things you always ask someone who's a new guy, an FTN, if you will, uh, where are you from in the world? Okay, it wasn't like where you're just from. It was always the world. The big PX was the United States. Okay, you're going into Southeast Asia and uh, you were restricted with the information you were getting. You were restricted with the music that you were getting. And uh, it was just something that uh, uh, we will remember that way. Something that sort of makes me think about this shift in music, this brought up an idea of just the first time, Don, that you heard this sound, this new sound that was sort of coming out. What did you think of it? Uh, you know, I, I feel like nowadays there's, it's very rare that I'll be driving in the car and a new song comes out and I'm like, oh, I've never heard that sound before. Or, wow, that sounds really incredible. Or it really like, you know, captures you uh, quite like I would think it did back in the sixties. Um, do you remember that? I do, I, I remember very well, especially in 1969, I was still home at the time. And uh, when Woodstock came out, Every, especially when the movie Woodstock came out, I think it came out in 70. But uh, that whole scene of Woodstock was not my scene. I was a Motown guy. I was a jazz guy. Uh, I was a, a, I had different interest in music other than listening to Can Heat or 
some of the psychedelic bands. It wasn't that wasn't me, and I took that with me too. I didn't get into that type of music until well later. You know, when Hendrix kind of came out, I, I, I grew into him. But uh, I was all Motown, uh, particularly the uh, Temptations and the Supremes, and that sound. That was how that's how we rolled back in the day. But uh, when that psychedelic music came out, it took me a while to get myself into that. I did not like the Beatles when they came out in 63, 64. I think it was James Bond who said it pretty well in Goldfinger 1963. And he says, you don't drink Dom Perignon when it's over 34 degrees, or you don't listen to the Beatles without earmuffs. <laughs> that kind of stuck with me. But uh, that said, uh, that was just my own personal thing. And then, you know, you're interacting with guys from different uh, areas of the country and different interests, of course. And uh, they brought their music with them. So we kind of shared. Or I remember turning guys on to Miles Davis. Okay, that's where I was at at 19 years old. Um, and some of the guys said, Who in the heck is that? And I'm listening yeah. to Miles Davis, you know, on a reel to reel tape, Kevin. Okay, yeah, so, uh, that's it. Was just different times back then, Don. If you've not seen the documentary, The Summer of Soul, you yeah. absolutely have to see it. It it's is on, it's on my bucket list. It is, yeah, it's yeah. just come out. For those who don't know, it was a concert held in Harlem in, in 1969. Uh, the footage, the director is Questlove, the, the, the musician, uh, drummer of the Roots and of uh, Late Night. Um, the footage hasn't been seen for 50 years because it could just never be sold because Woodstock was being pitched to the movie industry right at the same time as the Summer of Soul. But the lineup of that concert is just ridiculous. I mean, it's crazy. You know, the band The Fifth Dimension is in this concert. They had the biggest hit in 1969, I think, uh, their, their hit of um, Let the Sunshine with um, uh, Age of Aquarius, which they got off of yeah. the movie, or the excuse me, the Broadway show of Hair. They talk about how they did that too, but you absolutely have to see it. Well, you it's, had a lineup of B.B. King to Aretha Franklin to, it was, yeah. a, who, who, it was a who's who of black music. It was and a staple singers. It was it, it, it's insane. It, uh, that's definitely on my bucket list, Kevin. I'm looking forward to seeing it. I believe it's playing at the uh, local theater up at the Manor up in Square Hill. Yeah, and it's also streaming if uh, if that works for you too. I'd say go to the theater though, because it's really an emotional, it's quite an emotional journey. Yeah. Summer of Soul. Um, Ryan, uh, talk to me a bit about the music. Uh, you know, you, we had talked about the music in post-neon. There wasn't really anything that was really coming out that was really capturing you guys. Um, yeah. But was there something that you heard while over there that sort of like, that was different than anything you had heard before. Somebody like Don bringing, you know, Motown in. Did somebody bring you music that that you hadn't heard before? Yeah, I'm. So yes, um, which was which was pretty cool. Uh, the, the the different music tastes that you get. Anytime you get a group of different people together, they're going to have different interests, and it does kind of uh, expose you to new things. And what I think is interesting is like you do like. I was thinking about this when you said like it's hard to hear music now today that you haven't like heard some sort of thing before right but i think that the, the kind of the value in that is like um by hearing that sort or that that type of music it opens up a new generation to looking into older stuff like like i remember when i heard the the white stripes for the first time which happened you know when i was overseas and i was like what is i'm like this is awesome like i was like this is so cool and um uh and then like how that led you back to like different types of music which you which you would then be interested in like i think that that that's that's a you know a, a very good value of like having 
musicians inspired by other ones, um, which can then lead to a, a better, you know, more kind of fuller understanding and appreciation for that style of music. Mm -hmm. For this episode uh, of the Scuttlebutt, uh, we're going to hang a wrap on this one. We wanted to just get dive into these responses, continue the conversation a bit, um, have some fun um, here, and uh, look forward to season four, which uh, we might pull another volume three. I think that if we can get some more responses about World War II era music, as well as Korean War era music, uh, we'd love to hear about more of the bands that, that these veterans might have been listening to. Uh, maybe dive into a bit of that as well. Um, but as always, make sure that you like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell and leave us a comment or leave us a review. You can contact me at sean at veteransbreakfastclub.org. That's S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org. Um, I want to thank you guys for, for jumping on uh, with me for, for our reunion here. Um, and I hope to see you guys again. Uh, we have some other things that are going to be cooking uh, with Don as well. So those will come out soon. Um, otherwise, uh, have a great time and we'll see you back here on the Scuttlebutt next week.